Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for July 2014. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen episode 50, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I am writer, hyphen director, hyphen using 50% of my intellectual capacity for episode 50, Paul Anthony Nelson, and our very special guest today isn't with us at the moment, but she shall be joining us anon. Yes, right after this segment, we will be joined by the amazing Lexi Alexander. But until then, you flagged one of the films we'll be talking about, because human beings, it's true, only use 10% of their butts. What would happen if you could use all 100% of your butt? That was the premise of a (laughs) film I would like to see, not the premise of Lucy, the new film by Luc Besson, Uh, which is about 10% of your brain, that old myth, yeah, old chestnut. <laughs> yes, Scarlett Johansson in, accidentally ingests a whole lot of uh, drugs and becomes a superhero. Can I just say, I had so much fun with this film. <laughs> it's, uh, it was a film I was, I was watching and thinking, everybody's going to hate this, mm. but I am loving it. And then, much to my surprise, most of the other critics we were at the screening with enjoyed it as well. I, th- I feel it's almost unique in the way that proportionately as ridiculously stupid as much of it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on the, but on the other side, it's almost equally oddly profound, mm. as well as these sort of faux science that it deals in, like this whole 10% of the brain concept yeah, yeah. and all that sort of thing. But its focus is in a different area. Like, it doesn't feel like as shallow as something like Limitless. Mm. It's not kind of, I'm using my intellect to become the world's smartest person and I'm controlling the stock market and being Captain Awesome because I now have unlocked all this power. It's like all her earthly concerns are instantly kind of cast to the side with each bump up in intelligence Mm. because she's obviously kind of attaining a higher state. And I thought that was really cool. And it sort of deals in these these sort of philosophical counterculture sort of concepts of, you know, we're all just cells in one organism just moving in a different vibration and things like that. It's also got some great action sequences. Scarlet's terrific. You know, old boy's the bad guy. <laughs> Choi Min Sik. Oh, God. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Spent the whole time trying to figure out why he looked so familiar. <laughs> um, you know, it's not afraid to be brutal. It's flashes of intelligence. I just love how much of the screenplay process, to me, seemed to be Luke Besson just sitting at his computer going, Fuck it. And then writing something. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, and, and it's all under 90 minutes. I just had so much fun with this. Yeah, it's, look, it's a lot better than I thought it would be. Like, it's pretty silly, and the science as well as much of the philosophy feels really undergraduate, like, oh my god, I'm at university, and I'm going to have ideas that no one else has had, you know. Or um, middle-aged guy on an LSD trip. Or that. One of the two. But yeah, look, it's, it's pretty interesting. It goes to some interesting, non-obvious places, even though there are the typical Luc Besson shootouts in corridors, yeah. which sort of seems a bit redundant given the scope of the film. It's still, look, I, I, I still rate it a lot more than I, I, I expected to. Yeah, this is, I, this is, I've not enjoyed a Luc Besson film this much since the 90s, I, I don't think. Yeah, it's silly, but it's a blast. And what of Some Velvet Morning? Because uh, Neil Labute, Neil Labute has made another film. He's been doing a lot of theatre and TV lately, but he's, uh, yeah, returned with, with a very stagey type, like, like a you, lot of his early work. You don't say. Right. Neil Labute makes something stage. stagey. Well, you know, in, in the grand tradition, there, there's a lot of great cinema that's come from uh, single location things that feel mm. like they're designed for theatre. Absolutely. Have they come from Neil Labute? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop ripping on Neil Abute. 
<laughs> so you did you did not enjoy this. Enjoy is an interesting word. I look, it's snappy. You know, it's short. There's uh, lots of quippy dialogue. You know, he's not afraid to go, as we all know, he's, he's not afraid to go to the ugly side of relationships. In fact, he's in a rush to go to the ugly side of relationships. It only features two actors, just uh, uh, Stanley Tucci and Alice Eve. Tucci's fantastic. He's I always... think Alice Eve is as well. Yeah, she grew on me. I, yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't feeling her early on, but then as, as the film goes on, I feel she gets better and better. Mm. And by the end, yeah, she was she was wonderful. The problem with Labute, a long time ago, he became the M. Night Shyamalan of stagey relationship movies, mm. of stagey, misanthropic relationship films. It's like everything seems... Ge- everything in his plays and his films, they're really interesting as you're watching them and they're thought-provoking, and then they get to the end, and it's like, oh, you just do all this for this twist. And it's starting to feel as empty as, as Shyamalan stuff. Mm. And particularly as he keeps going over similar ground as well, you kind of think, is there anything else in the arsenal? Or is it just this? So I didn't have a bad time with it. I think it's certainly, you know, diverting. But I think my main problem with the twist ending too is it seems to kind of almost, I don't want to give anything away, mm. but you sort of feel like, oh, does this actually cheapen what we've just seen? Most of the people I've heard who have ripped into it have, or haven't liked it, have said that the ending does make them feel as if what the hell was the point mm. of the last... I've seen... Yeah, that's quite a common thing. And seeing what we've seen as well. Mm. I've gotten annoyed at reviewers in the past have said things like that about the usual suspects and things mm. like that. Well, so does that just make everything irrelevant? And I don't necessarily agree with that. It's just we put one character in particular through some pretty gruelling stuff that, you know, is quite uncomfortable. If you were going to push my buttons, you could have done it in a more elegant way. See, I think this is a total return to form from him. Okay. Because, like, when we when we did Labute on the show years ago, it was it was just such a ridiculous descent after two strong films. Yeah. It was a really disappointing filmography <laughs> after that, you know, to varying degrees. This is almost up there with his first two for me. Oh, wow. I, I, I loved it. I don't think there's anyone who writes horrific, unlikable men better than him. And uh, in such an unforgiving way, like he makes you hate these men. Mm. And I don't think he's been this good in years. And the twist enhanced the whole thing for me. Okay. I thought it was a cop out at first, like everyone else. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no way, that's it's much cleverer than that, than, than what it appears to be. I think, I think it really elevates the film and not just puts a whole twist on it, but uh, makes the journey something else entirely. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, like, seriously loved this film. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just, it, it was just kind of straight up the middle for me. I just sort of felt, yeah, yeah f- um, kind of five out of ten. But, wow, okay. But it's not the most unlikable character that Stanley Tucci has played because he was also in Transformers Age of Consent. Uh, <laughs> I haven't checked. I'm sure someone's made that joke before. Because uh, it's, you know, Transformers Age of Extinction. And there's a really disturbing thread in there about where they try to justify a guy sleeping with a younger girl with Mark Wahlberg's daughter. And it's all this, according to Texas law, this, yeah. you know. So, um, I've yeah. Not, I've not seen the film, but I've heard this. Mm. There's this whole sequence about, yeah, justifying statutory rape, which seems interesting. It's, yeah, well, I mean, technically it's not. But it's just weird the lengths they, they go to to say, technically it's legal. So... <laughs> And you think there's got to be a shorter way to do that without you looking so pleased with yourself. Um, In your PG-13 giant robot movie. Exactly. What place does this conversation have in this movie? I mean, that could describe half the scenes in the other Transformers films. Well, this... um, How does this compare? Well, this is... 
it's actually kind of fascinating in once you remove yourself, once you leave your body and go to a happier place yeah. than the place that you're in at the moment, at the time, which is watching a Transformers film, yeah. um, that never ends. It's, it's the perfect culmination of all of Michael Bay's worst instincts oh, good. or best instincts, depending <laughs> on your point of view. There is appropriately nothing human in this film at all. Yeah. Cause we, we always praise films for being efficient for not wasting a line or a shot. Yeah. And this film does that but in such an impressively artificial way where everyone, well, I guess I didn't get into college. Come in here, daughter. Your, your mother died several years ago. You know, like every line is just the clunkiest exposition and none of it feels remotely natural, but it's all on point. And I don't, it's really confusing. I find the action really superfluous yeah. and like, I've never liked his, the action he's directed in the Transformers films. I think it's ugly, and it gives me no sense of scale, especially after something like Godzilla. Yeah. I just get nothing from it. It's also the fact that 20-foot, 30-foot tall hunks of metal seem to be weightless and just bounce around things. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> like they're is... made of flubber. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they feel like pixels. Yeah. Uh, you never get the sense that they're actually there. No. I just can't fathom anyone over the age of 10 being remotely interested in this. Yeah. Which is why I find it all so fascinating, but also interesting is watching it in IMAX. You know, Michael Bay is such a technically minded... Now, do you remember where, like, when you see something like Dark Knight Rises in, in IMAX and there are sequences that are in IMAX mm. and then it cuts back to 35? Yeah. He does that shot by shot. In the middle of an action film, he'll oh, go, God. IMAX 35, IMAX oh. 35, which <laughs> is headache-inducing enough, but when you're watching it in 3D, <laughs> it's just, like, it's such a technically... Poor choice on wow. top of everything else. I will give it credit. It does something better than the Indiana Jones films. Between Transformers and Indiana Jones, tell me which series had Sheila Booth in part four. Yeah, that's right. So there, I'm saying something positive about this film. There's no Sheila Booth in this film. High praise indeed. Very, very high praise. But more impressive science fiction is Snowpiercer, Bong Joon-ho, who made the excellent The Host and Memories of Murder and Mother, which I adore, making a film set entirely on a train in a dystopian future. I don't want to sound like I'm too gushy about it, but Tilda Swinton's in it. Yeah. Which, um, is, which is the highest form of praise you can give a film. <laughs> Lately, yeah. Lately, yeah. Yeah, I had so much um, fun with this one too, but... It's really interesting because everything in this film seems to be thematically on point, even down to the structure of the film. Mm. You know, it, we've all heard about, you know, it's, it's sci-fi action, but it's also quite political and quite thought-provoking. And, and it's this kind of, you know, all, all in this kind of fantastical situation of, you know, all of humanity on, on a train after a second ice age. And the train is structured from, you know, the, 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 the lower classes at the back to the higher classes at the front. Mm. And Chris Evans and his kind of ragtag team decide they, they need to get to the front. They need to take the train. The first half hour of this film is one of the most visceral portions of film I've seen in mm. a long, long time. I was curling up in my seat, thrilling at their journey. I haven't had that in, a, you know, in quite a while. It's just so exciting. And as they start getting through the train, it starts becoming a little bit more... It starts becoming definitely more political, 
there are some other great action set pieces and so, something about South Koreans and mm. action set pieces. I don't know. There's something in the blood, particularly with knives in hallways or yeah. <laughs> with knives in long cor- knives and hammers in long corridors. <laughs> so Koreans just love them. But as it starts getting a little bit more intellectual as they're going towards the front of the train, there's, there's some really heady concepts being talked about and. That's where I'm saying it's all thematically on point because as they're going from the tail to the head, the the film is going from the visceral, the gut, mm. to the brain. Yeah, right. as the film continues, as they get close to the end, and I found that so interesting. Like even the the way the film is structured fits the theme. I thought this was really, really exciting stuff. Mm. I agree with all that, and I, I love how non-pandering it is. There's almost no consideration given to, oh, God, will people like this? Yes. No, this is what we want to do. It's so, like, willfully silly at times and so contained and so confident in its yeah. concept. That's the yeah. thing I didn't say. Like, the man- this film's management of tone is mm. insanely good and switches all over the place. As you say, it's really silly at times. It's funny at others. It's not afraid to be goofy. It's not afraid to be brutal. It's not afraid to be... Clever, you know, I just love the fact, a film that extols the virtues of a single well-earned cigarette. And it's, it's one of the things that shows that, yeah, this wasn't made in Hollywood. This, yeah. is, uh, this is an international action film. And, yeah, I just adore it. All right, we are now joined by our very special guest, uh, all the way from Los Angeles, filmmaker Lexi Alexander. Lexi, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So we were wondering, uh, seeing this was a unique opportunity to uh, talk to somebody who has worked in and outside of the Hollywood system, with the rise of prestige television and the fact that studios have become more corporatized in the last 10, 20 years and now seem fairly brand-driven, is the thoughtful studio picture dead? Because we, we looked at Academy Award nominees you know, for Best Picture 10, 15 years ago. You, you know, the studios would normally bankroll you know, their sort of Oscar favourite uh, Oscar baiting type films, I guess. Whereas now, they seem to be independently made films that are acquired by the studios and released for Oscar time. Whereas, you know, ten years ago we got films like No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood and all this sort of um, Michael Clayton and and what have you. Um, and now these days, the studios don't seem to be in that business at all. And I'm wondering, has the thoughtful studio picture is it now a thing of the past, and has it moved to television? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is something I've been discussing quite a bit. Um, and, you know, funny enough, I I had about three meetings with people who do big movies um, or people who work in companies that do big movies. And this has just been in the last month. But I met with them about TV because they all now have departments to get into TV as well. But, you know, I, I walk in and they know I come from the feature world and I see one of their posters on the wall. So I make a comment on you know, a certain movie that has, you know, grossed a billion dollars or whatever. And, you know, these just mega comic book or otherwise these mega event movies. And, you know, none of them really, you know, love doing this. And I get the sense in all of these three meetings that the pressure, the pressure of having a movie at that cost and, you know, one of them said to me, yeah, with movies, it's all in or nothing, meaning basically mm. you either make that, you know, $200 million movie with another $100 million of marketing cost and hope that it breaks $500 million, or you do nothing at all because it's their fault for not figuring out what to do. But 
it's not there for the, the smaller movie, like the, the original Goonies type movie that that doesn't work anymore. Because, you know, the marketing a movie has become incredibly difficult. People don't realize that, you know, all of us still grew up. I mean, I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm assuming we're in somewhat the same generation. <laughs> yeah. we, we all grew up, you know, as kids, like we would say, I want to go see a movie or, you know, your parents would take you for a movie um, and you would look in the newspaper what movie is playing. Well, there's no paper anymore. And in a family of four, all four have a different source of where they get uh, their information about what movie is playing. So where on on which of the 500 television channels that we have and, and satellite radio and internet, who knows what, where do we put the trailers and the posters and, and all of this stuff? And so it has become, because media has become so big and information resources has become so many, um, it has become increasingly difficult for the studios to let an entire country know that there's this movie out they should see, which is why they don't even want to touch anything that doesn't have a star. Mm. A star makes it easier, and if it's not a star, it, you know, it has to be based on a, a game, based on a video game, based even on, you know, Monopoly will be coming up. I heard they're making a movie called Bazooka Joe. Mm. Anything that has a brand name. And, of course, the comic book movies and the endless remakes. But that's really because they don't know how to get people back in the theater. So that's really it. And I keep saying on almost every podcast somebody asks me this or in any interview, I'm waiting for some smart internet kit to come up with something that makes niche marketing easier. Because everybody says mm. you have to make niche movies and market them to niches. And I, I think it's not, it doesn't commute. Like whoever is in charge of doing that, they can't, I don't know what it is. They can't figure it out. And I think it's going to be some some kid who's going to make a major change because he, he or she invents some app that's going to make it all better. <laughs> It, it is baffling that they have all of these seemingly endless resources and they can't devote a bit of it to trying to understand how niche marketing works. It's like a military thing. They only understand the carpet bomb. They only understand the $100 million, $200 million marketing campaign and the six-character posters and what have you. Maybe it's a risk-return thing that they're not willing to take, which is kind of sad. And also, film studios are not in the business of, of figuring things out. They're in the business of, oh, that thing worked? Um, mm -hmm. We're going to make a hundred of those. I mean, yeah. that really, you've got to give them that. You know, it, it would be nice if somebody would say, listen, you know, the shareholders make us, you know, spend $30 million a year on figuring out what the fuck we're going to do. By the way, hmm. am I allowed to curse? You yeah, are absolutely okay. allowed to curse. And encouraged. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I mean, it does happen once in a while, but no. um, so, you know, but that's not, that's not going to happen. They don't even know. I mean, they, they pick up things like the purge and Blair Witch, but they, they only realized that there was some kind of whisper campaign and some kind of massive online campaign after the fact they, they're not inventors. Um, you know, they, 
you know, they now want to make a million uh, paranormals and purges and, and, and whatnot. And I think they try to make a, a million times, they try to repeat the Blair Witch Project. It really has to be somebody else because they're not going to work on figuring out. And I think they really in the all or nothing business, meaning we are going to have event movies or nothing. And there's another aspect to it. For some reason, I always get the truth out of people without, you know, without <laughs> even trying. But there was this one executive who was who once explained me in detail of how the exhibitors, you know, actually kick out smaller movies. Mm. So say um, you have a movie in there, I don't know, um, what's a good movie that's that's a cool indie-like movie? Uh, Frank. Uh, Frank? Does that come out in the US yet, the, uh, the big giant head, Michael Fassbender and a big head? No, but okay, let's say that one. That sounds great, right? <laughs> but, you know, that that's something that maybe has to find its audience as well. Like it has to be seen by a whole bunch of people who tell their friends, right? Mm. But it it's now to the point, and this literally I, I've just found out recently, that the exhibitors will kick you out because, you know, they can have 12 screens, you know, of Iron Man and they all sell out. So they don't want you because you make less money for them. And there's part of that that I understand as well. And there's also this thing, I mean, you know, somebody was saying about Tammy the other day um, that it, it, you know, opening weekend, it seemed doomed. And everybody was already saying, oh, you know, uh, poor Melissa McCarthy, this is a bomb. We hope she recovers from this. And then all of a sudden it picked up slowly, slowly. Mm. And people were writing about, oh, so it's not a bomb. Look at this. And and I thought, well, don't people understand that adults actually can't schedule their life around opening weekend? I mean, mm. adult people have kids. Their their kids have soccer tournaments or who knows what. Like what? Who who has made this rule that we we all must rush to the opening weekend? Really, only college kids can do that or high school kids. Mm. Nobody with a real life can do that. So, so is there something about the fact that uh, film is so centred around opening weekend and events, whereas television seems to be focused more on content? Because I look at uh, someone like Steven Soderbergh, who, you know, a big deal was made about the fact that he was retiring, but he only ever said he was retiring from cinema. And part of that was because he said all the exciting stuff is being done on television now. Well, that's totally true. I mean, look, the majority of filmmakers do not want to make this movie. And I can tell you out of experience that oftentimes you step into a comic book movie or anything that because your agents pressure you or because it's the only offer you have that's screen lit. Because, you know, I was already in that in that decade where all of a sudden only these films got greenlit. And so, you know, there's only so much time you can hang on to these great little original movies you have. If nobody makes them, you don't make money. And if you're a certain director and you have a certain you know, established career. It's not like you can moonlight as a bartender at night, you know, <laughs> that during the day, you know, so you end up stepping in these, uh, you know, in these big, huge event movies and for th some of them it works out, but it's always somebody saying to you, well, you know, you make this one Captain America or you make this one, who knows what it is. And, and therefore you can make five little ones afterwards. And frankly, almost every filmmaker has that in the back of their mind. Um, and mm -hmm. those residual che checks pay really well. They really do. So what's happened though, is there's so many original writers and people 
who are, you know, who grew up with the, the Goonies and Ghostbusters and Lost Boys and all these original movies that, you know, we used to enjoy growing up and they've died out. So what do we do with our original ideas? And then people think we're the ones who don't have ideas because there's only remakes and comic books in. No, we have ideas. Nobody wants to put them on screen. And then TV started putting certain, like, you know, um, game-changing things like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos, like they started putting out these stories. And suddenly, you know, we're all changing everything in our schedule to be home because Game of Thrones is on, but you can't get us in the theater, which, by the way, has bad popcorn <laughs> and is crowded and some kid is screaming and somebody's on their cell phone. So, you know, it all makes sense. I mean, everybody is in TV now, everybody. I hope for our sakes, I hope for cinema's sake, that this can turn around. And now with the anthology series, with things like True Detective and Fargo and American Horror Story, we've got, you know, film-level talents all moving to, to make these shows because they only have to work on them for a year and then they can kind of go back to their other careers. I, st I keep thinking, well, first of all, TV, I don't look at it so differently, probably because I'm from Europe. I focused on TV for the actually really... After Punisher came out, I focused on almost uh, only on TV writing. I sold stuff. I had stuff optioned. It never made on the screen. But believe it or not, you can actually make a living by never actually getting something on screen. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, and by the way, there's, there's, I guess there's many of us. I thought I was alone at this, but oh no, there's a whole, there's a whole, you know, army of people who constantly get stuff, uh, you know, actually have people buy it. But it, it, it's the rare person who goes all the way to a, a, a TV show getting ordered, you know. And so what's interesting, though, is for years I've been pitching this system you guys were talking about, the anthologies, as well as the, the British system. And I think you guys have some of that, too, like where people only make three episodes. They make three 90-minute yep. episodes. And so um, I, I've said, like, look, I wouldn't trust a young filmmaker either to and, and immediately sign off 30, 24 episodes. But why not have somebody do three episodes of a show and see how it works? And so I was explained that there is a gap financing issue. But um, the good news is I think that people are overcoming that now. I think it's happening in the U.S. And that's a really great thing. And frankly, what's there's nothing that much different about TV. I mean, to the point where nowadays there is event TV. You know, it's just mm. in people's houses. But literally, I mean, I have friends who have Game of Thrones parties and they're very good. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, if TV networks and cable channels, if they start buying original ideas and works, then who knows? Then the only thing we're missing is, you know, the bad popcorn because people all have screening rooms, you know, in their living rooms now because TVs get cheaper. So that's how I see it. Lexi, please tell us whom have you picked for your... Helen's for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. I picked Usan Palsy, um, who is a French uh, filmmaker. We both have to confess we had not heard of her when you picked her, which is very embarrassing for, for film fanatics like us. Discovered it, it's quite extraordinary that we hadn't heard of her because she was the first black woman director ever produced by a major Hollywood studio, which is a pretty big deal. 
Correct, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, beside the fact that um, she also got Marlon Brando to come out of retirement mm. for her only because of her and to work for free or for scale. Also, I should say, everybody calls her a French filmmaker, but I wonder if she would be preferred to Martinique. be referred to as a Martinique filmmaker. Yes, that's where she's originally from. And, um, of course, that's where her first films were f from. I do love filmmakers who are inextricably linked to a specific place that is really rarely seen. And so many of her works are set in uh, Martinique, in, uh, in, in the Caribbean. And we see so little of that region that to sort of go through so many of her films, which, which really explore this culture, was just fantastic. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, it's funny because I actually got introduced to her. I, I watched The Killing Yard. And by the way, we should probably talk about it. <laughs> Lee and I had a very funny exchange of emails of panicked, like, I have The Killing Yard. And I, I probably assumed, I must admit, when I watched that movie, and I remember precisely when I was watching it, because um, I was researching prison movies. And so I wasn't thinking of the filmmaker, but when I saw her name, which is um, a rare name, you, do, you don't hear it very often, or at least not in America or in Germany, where I'm from. So I must have assumed it's a man, just like I made the mistake everybody mm. else made, right? And so <laughs> when I really paid, paid attention um, was when I... I sometimes illegally watch TV f here in America, but from Europe. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm totally saying it publicly. They can arrest me for it. But um, in Germany, we have this um, um, channel called Art or Arte or Art. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, it's a French-German channel. And I, I, I think it was there that I saw this miniseries called um, The Brides of Bourbon Island. Mm. And... And not only did I see that, I saw a little making of right before. And it was the making of that had me mesmerized because here was this woman um, who seemed so at home with being a director. You know, there's a, there's a certain, you know, you are in a way like a parent and people have to feel safe around you. You know, actors really... You know, I think it's important for them to feel safe, you know, so that they don't get embarrassed. And if they go too far, are you bringing them back? Will you tell them when they're bad? But will you not criticize them too much in front of others? So there's a certain dynamic. And, you know, here she was, I think, a week before production started. And she had insisted on this rehearsal. And all these amazing French actors were talking about how how great it is because they know the shoot is going to be hard. But because... Uh, Usan insists on, on such a rehearsal, they all know what they're doing. There will not be uh, any time for testing out. So it's great that they can do it now. And by the time, you know, they hit the locations, which was filmed on some island, and it seemed, you know, some of these uh, locations seemed on the side of a cliff or something like that. And so they're ready when they go there. But you also felt that they really had this respect for her. And um, it was just you know, somebody that I thought, wow, she really is a born director. And that's when I looked into her. And then I found out, oh, you know, she was, you know, Robert Redford brought her to the Sundance Lab and she directed the big first, uh, you know, studio film. And that immediately led to me being mad at the fact that she's not a bigger name. Why is she not a bigger name? Why is she not doing all kinds of 
mega mega movies you know other than and i'm sure that's what happened and i heard her say it in a couple of interviews you know of course she was asked to do very specific civil rights type uh, movies something to do with racism and you know i'm not sure and i think she said that out clear in one of the interviews that she really wasn't offered that much outside that stereotype mm. so yeah that's how i discovered her wow yeah she seems to, I mean, her filmography is extremely devoted to social justice, but again, it's also, it's linked to, partly to Martinique, partly to race, but but also it seems to be, like, she seems to be a real artist in that way, like, she only will do the stuff that really interests her. I don't necessarily think she's a, you know, one-size-fits-all um, social justice case. Oh, and, you know, I mean, she did in between, and then I could really relate to her because I've done that. Um, at a certain point, I said, I just want to make a movie with a kid that's magical and sweet and innocent. And literally, I got, like, hate for it afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, and I never understood why. And, by the way, people love that movie. But This is lifted? Know, it, Yes, but yeah. Hollywood was was like mad at me. Like distributors and agents were like, "Oh my God, Lexi, have you gone soft on us?" Like mm-hmm. it was like, "Ugh, I wish you would do something gritty like Queensway." It was always that. And then I saw how she, for example, did that uh, film uh, Simone. I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And my God, I I saw that film and it was it was magical. Frankly, I I don't know why. You know, it wasn't a bigger deal here. Or why hasn't somebody thought about remaking that? There's so much. People always say we need more kid films because those are, you know, still movies that would go, but then they don't have good ideas or they make a man. Now, that was a really fantastic, fantastic film. And that was after, and this is also some nobody talks about uh, when it comes to her. Not a lot of people talk about. She's one of those women who can do action and violence really well. Mm, absolutely. Um, so uh, it's actually, I found this quote from Alan Alda, because I, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I love The Killing Yard. I thought it was really well done, the flashbacks in, in this mm. graphic black and white. Mm. Um, I thought, you know, and I already thought this in um, the tri-white season, that she doesn't shy away. It's not a filmmaker no. who shies away from you know, I mean, that that scene with the uh, with that, you know, when Donald, I don't, I mean, are we allowed to give spoilers? I guess we, when yeah. Donald Sutherland dies, you know, that was quite a thing. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Mm. Uh, you know, of many other things in that movie, you know, but there's just details. You know, when you see somebody get driven over and you show it actually in several steps that are all painful, mm. that's, you know, it's not somebody who, you know, who cares about being PG for the purpose of pleasing people. That's somebody who's like, this is ugly, I'm going to show you ugly. Um, I think this was an Alan Alter quote that I found after he worked with her in um, in The Killing Yard. So he says, Yusan Palsy has an unusual combination of abilities. She can give you an extraordinary action sequence that gets your adrenaline adrenaline pumping and then she can move right into an intimate scene between two people that come straight from the soul women are often not considered when it comes to directing action but Eusine has a range that would be hard to find in most directors male or female so I think that's basically what it came down to when they were were not coming offers in for straightforward action movies you Mm. know well I, I, I do like that she deals with you know, difficult topics even within kids' films. Like in Simone, 
there's a little black girl who is upset because the doll she was given was black, uh, which which stunned me. The you know that she would be upset by that, and within this you know qu- quite light uh, kids film. Yeah. And, you know, there's actually all kinds of, she brings up all all kinds of neat little things. Like, I mean, Sugarcane Alley, which really was a masterpiece, Mm. that introduced us to a world that, I I mean, nobody's ever heard of, correct? Mm. I mean, and in such a a real way, I remember seeing those kids getting drunk and the fire starting and, you know, all these little details. Oh, I, I t- you know, right from the opening scene, um, to this day I wonder what was that animal w- that was actually fighting with that snake? <laughs> it, it was a mongoose, is it? Yeah. Ah, that's what it was. Yeah. What happens to them? <laughs> well, the, I mean, mon- the they- mongooses generally kill snakes. I've, ne- I've never seen it happen, but apparently that's what you send in if you want to get rid of a snake. Ah, mm. interesting. But anyway, it was just so rich on, on you know, authentic details about the world that, yes, we don't know much about. Um, and also, it wasn't Disneyfied, you know. There was certainly, I mean, you know, mm. when the grandmother, you know, beat the kid up for the, the sugar bowl or whatever that was broken, you know, I thought, mm. oh, my God, is this just a total ugly world? And then, of course, there was this fam- famous scene when she says, a quarter of a scholarship, we will show them, you know. Mm. <laughs> and... and um, you know, and then of course me, I'm sitting there, tears in my eyes because those are the kind of things I cry like a baby. Yeah. Yes, the yeah. grandmother will save him. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, it it she she didn't make it all beautiful. Like mm. the same grandmother who beat the shit out of him, you know, also moved everything to get this kid into the school. And it just you know, this is why we need filmmakers from every part of the world and from all classes and of every skin color and from every gender, you know, because we we won't get to see the stories we need to see because that movie really needed to be shown and seen. Mm. And like within that, I, lo- I love the idea of this kid who doesn't necessarily want to be elevated above his station. You know, his grandmother's trying to save him, but he's looking at the people he's grown up with and saying, well, no, maybe I want to work in the sugarcane fields. I don't want to be seen to be, you know, above my, my, my friends. And which is, you know, quite a complex idea in, in what initially seems like a relatively straightforward story. And in, in a dry white season. Um, so, if, yeah, Sugarcane Alley in 83 was a big breakout. And then Dry White Season, which is the film with Donald Sutherland and Marlon Brando and Susan Sarandon uh, in 89. And, and, it, and it is sort of told from the point of view of, you know, the, the white man during apartheid uh, who discovers how bad the situation is when his gardener's son is beaten by police. And I love how unapologetic it is about Sutherland's character, like his naivety and ignorance is roundly criticised throughout the film. Like, it's clear that he's turned a blind eye no matter how good his intentions are. And I, I love that she's not not forgiving uh, when it comes... Like, she's sympathetic, but not forgiving. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when the gardener's son actually comes in, he still believes... When he sees that the kid got mm. beat up, he still... I remember that little... that little scene where he has that throwaway line and the kid is already gone with his dad and he says to somebody he must have done something mm. Mm. because it was it 
you know, there was no way he could possibly believe that this was happening to innocent people. And so it was like all of these people were in this bubble. You know, it's funny, I don't know much about that conflict. And I thought about if there were any other major movies. But, you know, it's funny because that's, you know, they're really... You know, if you think about the major tragedies and injustices in life, there's always been some movie that helped us, you know, really identify how bad it was mm. and how that can never happen again. But, you know, with South Africa and apartheid, it really, there hasn't been, you know. I remember looking forward to Invictus and, and it was kind of just a sleeper. Mm. But I can't remember there being anything. And I think... This movie, Try White Season, I think it came after another one, which I forget it was, but I think people weren't quite ready to see that. Um, well, she, she was the only uh, black filmmaker to make a film about, about apartheid whilst it was still going on. Um, she, she even risked her life travelling undercover in South Africa to research the film, and apparently that was one of the reasons why Brando came out of retirement. He heard that story, realised how, how committed she was, to this story and and agree to to do it yeah and i mean that the whole thing i mean it's just you know you watch it and it, it breaks your heart so many times um and, and of course we look back and we go uh, you know what were these people thinking but you do that about every cruel incident in history you know mm. i mean i'm from germany so you can imagine that every time i met somebody from the generation who was around, I remember that precisely, that in seventh grade in Germany, you have to visit one of the uh, Holocaust museums. So you learn the whole story. And that's every seventh grade, you can't get out of it. And then again, in ninth grade. So we really get the history. But what happens is, you know, is we all go home to either our grandparents or in my case to the older neighbor and say what were you doing and why were you not speaking out <laughs> because in retrospect you know you just don't understand how anybody could ever be a monster like that mm. you know i also thought what was interesting though about that was um and i just found that out later um was that she made up that ending about the taxi driver killing um um, what's his name again? Um, the really bad guy who, yeah, who yeah. Uh, what is his uh, name again? This actor, I forget the actor's name. Um, anyway, he's the major bad guy who tortures all the uh, black uh, prisoners that he takes mm. and tortures them without reason. And so, the, when when the taxi driver kills him, it was a book, and she made uh, made that up. She added it. Now, I thought that was that was to me that is a very brave thing to do, because she must have known, and she's way too intelligent and too educated not to have known that there will be people upset about that. There will mm. be the, the 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 you know person who says, well, then you know, have we nothing learned? Do we say that violence needs to be answered with violence? But she didn't do it for any message, you know. It is this is what a storyteller is. This is what a director. Is. She she looked at that and I said, you know, this is what it feels like for me. How I would end the story, yeah. and you know, it it all you know it, it felt very real to me, very real. Because let's be honest, you know, at some point people will you know rise up and kill the monster, and rightly so. I in that moment felt rightly so, but of course. You know, we're not supposed to think that. But mm. I really appreciate her courage 
to to go for that. Yeah, I I was really interested uh, watching um, Ruby Bridges, which is the film she did, uh, the TV movie in '98, which is you know produced by Disney, and it's uh, it's sort of a family friendly look at integration in the South, and I, I think. Um, uh, it was actually introduced from the White House on TV by uh, U.S. President Bill Clinton and Disney President Michael Eisner. Uh, it's just really amazing that the most powerful person in America would appear next to Bill Clinton um, to introduce <laughs> the film. But, uh, but um, yeah, I, I thought in terms of how to introduce such a difficult concept to a young audience that it was just masterfully done. You know, I really like that movie. It's another one of those things where, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm just one of those people who, who cries about it. when things are honest and they injustice, mm. anything about unfairness, injustice and bullying, and it's done well. I mean, I'm literally a mess. Like <laughs> I, I can't, I can't. So instantly, you know, that, I mean, how people could yell at a kid like that is, is just unreal to me it's funny because i i thought to myself you know she she th there were some rules she had to follow when it comes to disney and it's showing on tv you can't do certain things mm. and i'm sure she knew that and i'm sure she agreed to that because otherwise you don't agree to that you know but you know it just occurred to me as i was watching that you know had she been able to do that in an edgy way it's not that she did a bad job i mean mm. it was certainly it was moving and you know it was done in a way so that 10 year olds or eight year olds can watch it yeah but yeah. you know the reality of that was probably a lot worse i'm mm. assuming you know of what was going on and so it it'd be interesting to know if she ever received other offers or or not you know i mean Given what she ended up doing for the USA, I'm assuming that the offers weren't that great, which is typical. I mean, that's just how it is in Hollywood, is they like a certain person. And I, I actually found a quote um, she said herself in some interview um, where she said um, about meeting with Hollywood studios. She said, they go like robots, straight by the book. Someone of color needs to be in the room to say, what about a black actor or a director? Sometimes they just never thought about it. They need to be reprogrammed. And she's absolutely right with mm -hmm. that. Because if you would say to a studio executive or a head of a studio that they're racist or that they're sexist, they would fight you to the death. No way, no way. I have daughters or no, I have mm -hmm. all kinds of, you know, uh, black friends and black writers and black directors, you know. They don't see it, but that doesn't mean they don't need to be reprogrammed. Their, their idea of a filmmaker will forever look like Spielberg and the younger version would be a Spike Jones. Like they have a certain, a Quentin Tarantino, if you geek in, you worked in a video store, you fall into that category. That is their, it's, it's, it's like, it's unfortunate, but their head follows cliches, mm. you know, and, and they don't even know they're doing that. It did make me wonder, what, watching all of her, her, her works, whether uh, the, the question I got was, was whether she has a particular interest in telling stories about race or whether that's all that she gets offered now. Um, that's all they're willing to let her make uh, because that's the narrow view they have of her. And if, it, if that's just her interest, then that's great. But if that's all they're letting her do, then, yeah, it's a bit, bit well, disappointing. I think 
in several interviews, you can see that she says, look, I wasn't going to play that game. I wasn't going to be stereotyped. I wasn't going to be the name for their causes. And I mean, from what I understood, obviously, I can't answer that for I'm only interpreting, interpreting her interviews and her, you know, Mm. statements. But, you know, I, I, I am a woman director in this town. So I, I also know what's going on. And whereas when a guy comes like, you know, um, you know, with Ang Lee, people at some point, somebody must have said, how about Ang Lee for Brokeback Mountain? A very American. I mean, it, it was about homosexuals, but it was, a, you know, it was about cowboys mm. in a very American neighborhood. And nobody blinked because they just you know, yes, you know, he's Asian, but he's a great filmmaker, you know. But I think for her name to ever come up on a list like that is, you know, a stretch. And and actually what's funny about that is I don't see a lot of black filmmakers getting, um, you know, offers to do films that have nothing to do uh, with any black cause or any race cause, you Mm. know. And maybe they wouldn't do it, but, you know, there's just, you know let's put it this way, like, for example, a movie like uh, Dogtown, you know, that Catherine Hardwick movie, Mm. you know, something about skaters in Venice Beach. Maybe there weren't a lot of black skaters, but why wouldn't you go to um, a black director with that? I bet you nobody was doing that because Mm. that's in their mind, you know, and I, I don't understand that because you know what? There's a lot of European men constantly doing very American movies Mm -hmm. about very American places and they work out really well. And I think the reason for that is because when you actually, you know, somebody once asked me why this short film that I made, I said, you know, it's amazing how you as a European portrayed Alabama so beautifully. And I said, well, because you guys walk by and you see, you know, you see it all the time. It's nothing new for you. Maybe some of you even look down on it. But I see, you know, an old car in somebody's backyard and I think it's beautiful. Mm, You know, in Germany, you don't find old cars in backyards. It's not allowed. (laughs) And also nobody would have a car in their backyard, you know, but I, I see it and I'm just like, Oh, look, there's a classic old car that will never drive, but here it is, and plants are growing out of it, and the man lives there. And, you know, so we sometimes when you're, you look at it with different eyes, your point of view can actually be more detailed. Mm. And so why not have her do all kinds of movies that have nothing to do with uh, race or, or any kind of Caribbean African background, you know? Mm. And and that's really the bummer, which especially after that um, Attica movie, after The Killing Yard, I think you had to admit that she is really good at action, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, well, that's the thing. She was getting better with every film, definitely. And that, that Attica footage is really jarring. Like, it's really quite... Um quite bracing you sort of think surely they can find a place for her somewhere to make something and and it's i guess that thing too like she's attracted to to subjects that really interest her and she doesn't want to play the game um but you think god you, you'd think somebody would give her money to do something because she's obviously an, an important intelligent voice who can direct action and can direct sensitivity and can direct emotion and yeah she seems to have all the skill set and and 
and is and is a powerful figure herself. Well, you know, look, the, she never says that nothing came. And I actually, from what I've read now, from what came to her, I already uh, look at it as a miracle. Being being a woman and a woman director and having colleagues who are more successful, less successful, we constantly talk about it. The fact that anybody reaches out is a miracle. But and she. She never complains about it in that way. She just says she didn't want to uh, play the game. But what I'm saying in her place, because she probably won't ever say, is that there should have been many lists where she should have been on there. You know, I can guarantee you that... You know, even in, you know, you know, people always talk about Marvel films and them never hiring a woman. You know, they go as far as approaching Kenneth Branagh, and that's not a weird choice for them. Approach her. Yeah, maybe that's not her thing, but you don't know that until you approach her. Mm. But there's other movies. Like, for example, a big one for me is um, all the young adult films, all the Hunger Games that come out. I mean, yeah. every Hunger Game so far, a man. Um, you know, that that other one, The Virgin Man. Like, there's actually, I think somebody made a Tumblr where all the young adult uh, movies are listed. And that's now a hot genre. Now, young adult movies, especially the ones that have a female hero, they are 80% of the audience, of the readership, is women. But when it comes to directing, they cannot find a woman. Have they ever approached her? Probably not. I mean, maybe she would have liked to direct the Hunger Games. Imagine her directing the Hunger Games. <laughs> you know, sorry. Mm. I mean, and that's that's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm sure she's grateful that she's been getting uh, some offers, but which I really honestly think that is that is already big, you know, because it usually, I mean, it's, you know, Catherine Hartwick, you know, turned young adult into a huge uh, genre mm-hmm. making. That's the hundred. irony. It's so, yeah, and, and then she never gets another one again, right? Yeah. And, yeah, and right after she turned it into money-making, they hired all guys. But that's what I'm saying is yeah. that, you know, it just, it, it's a thing where I'm like, and it's not that it's only a cause for me in terms of justice. It's the fact that I just think, I mean, it, most young guys, by the way, can totally see this. Every time I do a podcast with somebody and, um, you know, they usually so far have been all young men. They all say to me, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if such and such would direct this? They all know that somebody who made Sugarcane Alley, putting them on one of those young adult books, you know, it's like I get goosebumps. So Mm. it's a weird dynamic, this Mm. whole, (laughs) you know, and I always say, you know, I had this conversation with filmmaker colleagues the other day and I said, you know, what's bizarre is when you at a dinner table and you invite five strangers and, you know, one of them comes from uh, the slums in Brazil and another one comes from Berlin, Kreuzberg and is a Turkish person who always had to fight adversity there and another one comes from Martinique and then you have Ivy League Harvard, white guy, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. which one do you want to talk most on the table? Mm -hmm. Like, who do you think has the best stories? And by the way, we need white guy Ivy League as well, but we have 90% of their point of view. Mm. Why? When mm. when in reality, if you would be at a dinner like that, you would want to know from all the other ones who grew up in the in the environments that A, you don't know about, and B, mm-hmm. you thought were a little harder on them, right? Absolutely. Exactly. There are uh, just two other works uh, that we haven't we haven't touched on. Uh, that that Pulsey made, which is uh, two documentaries. There's the Amy Cesar 
uh, a voice for history documentary in 94 and apologies for the pronunciation parkour's de dissidence in 2006 and they're both um uh documentaries essentially a, about martinique you know one's about a poet and the other is about uh what the caribbean went through in uh during world war Two, and they're absolutely fantastic you know they're they're amongst the best work and i, I hope she continues making documentaries because she's got a real uh, flair for it. I agree. I agree. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I, I read about another filmmaker, really like uh, Deborah Granick from Windersbone, that she now, mm. instead of making a feature, is doing a documentary. And part of you kind of goes, oh, I bet it's going to be great. And then another part of you goes, why is she having to do a documentary? So the thing is, you know, the documentary, she is a fantastic document, documentary maker absolutely true but for somebody like her to keep uh, going out and doing that mm. it, it would be great if we could provide her to make a living because documentaries don't although yeah. i have to say in france at least they have a government grant and stuff in place you know because yeah you know we want like five from her every year that's what we should be having we should send her everywhere because it was funny how once again here were these these uh, guys who were not treated well by France themselves, you know, who were not, you know, they, you know, there's a whole racist thing in France itself, but who were willing to die for the country, which was the exact equal thing that happened in the U.S. at the mm. same time. But we've never heard of Martinique, you know, I've never mm. heard of their special unit. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, Pulsey's received so many honours. She received a knight in the National Order of Merit from the French president. In 1997, a French cinema was named after her. In 2000, Martinique's first high school devoted to film study was also named after her. She received the French Legion of Honour in 2004. Um, it's, it, she's just had so, many, uh, so much praise heaped upon her, in, uh, particularly in France and Martinique, that I think we really need to hear her name more uh, you know, in, in, in the English-speaking countries because uh, she is just not discussed nearly enough. And surely the only person to ever get Marlon Brando to work for free. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. I think there's definitely a part of it where she really, you know, enjoys France, but at the same time, I mean, and she probably thinks, oh, leave the Americans to themselves. Who wants to do Hollywood? I get that feeling too, mm. because, you know, as a European, you do come here and you kind of go, you know, are they all crazy? Why do they want to cast all women size zero? And it's all, as, as European, a lot of things, I mean, you, you watch European shows and now I've been here in America so long that I watch European shows and the minute somebody has wrinkles or is a size eight, I'm going like, oh, what, who is she? Is she, you know, a co-star? Like, <laughs> and, and then, you know, my mother, my sister will say, she's so-and-so, and she's been, you know, Germany's best actress for years, and she does this show really well. And I realize, ah, the rest of the world actually casts humans and people mm. and people that look like us. Where, yeah. You know, so I, I get definitely that she, there's probably a, a hand stretched out, but, you know, you know, more than making this like bad Hollywood, you know, it's more about like, especially in podcasts like this, people hear this and they should know that people like Usan, and I keep switching back from Usan and Usan, but <laughs> I've heard her say it. So it's definitely Usan. Mm. Uh, people like Usan Palsy are out there. We can choose them as our storytellers. We just have to demand them because nobody is making the noise for them. And that's, that's the big, um, I think the big difference is that, 
it just certain people um, will start, and I think because we're used to them, you know, even I think a Luc Besson had an easier time to stay in people's mind than Uzan, because Uzan was an outsider, you know, like nobody had seen, you know, a black female director at the time, and certainly not at the studios. Mm. And so she goes back to Paris and she's forgotten again, until she, unless she has a team of 10 agents who constantly hit on the studio's door. And I think it's really... Um, you know, our responsibility to point out that, you know, look, you know, we don't have to have the same person with a different haircut tell mm. our stories, you know? Absolutely. This this show we're doing has always been about uh, discovery. We, we, we love discovering, even filmmakers we know, we love discovering their lesser works. I love that sort of to, for our 50th, we got to discover a filmmaker we had not even heard of. That was very exciting for us. So, uh, Lexi, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, hopefully I can be back for your 100th episode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds Every- awesome. Don't you love that I just invited myself? Hi, oh. call me back for 50 weeks. <laughs> love it. Love it. And we'll see the rest of you next month. First, we'll have an orgy. Then we'll go see Tony Bennett.